Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Find a Bible if you have one. Of course, you can pull up this passage on your phone or on your computer and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. If you're in the Zoom room, you can just let everybody know that we're gathering back around for the message and that we're turning to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we're beginning a four-week sermon series uh, during Advent. Advent, as I've said, means to show up. Advent really means arrival or to show up. That's what the word means. And so in the weeks leading to Christmas, what we're doing is we're waiting for God to show up. We imagine ourselves, first of all, to be Israel, waiting for God to show up. And then as the church, we don't imagine, but we actually and actively wait for God to show up again when Jesus returns to make all things new. That's Advent. Advent teaches us to wait. Advent sharpens our sensitivity to Jesus. Advent stokes our longing for Jesus' return. It draws our attention to Jesus. And this is a good thing because it is so easy, especially in this season, to miss him to miss Jesus entirely. Years ago, there was a YouTube viral video. It begins with five simple words. This is an awareness test. And then it asks you to count how many times a basketball team passes the ball to each other. And they start passing uh, like Harlem Globetrotter style. And meanwhile, a man in a bear suit moonwalks right to the middle of the screen. Uh, But if you've ever watched this video, uh, you'll admit you didn't see the bear. A few of you did, and I commend you. But most of us didn't see the bear because we were so focused on other things. That's how I feel about Advent. We're so focused on so many other things, we miss the central thing. We miss the obvious thing. We miss Jesus. And so this year during Advent, we're going to sharpen our awareness. We're going to spend four weeks paying attention to Jesus in our everyday life. We're going to stoke our longing for his return. We're going to do this by noticing, by paying attention, by paying attention to our need for his grace, by paying attention for our need and longing for his return. And in the meantime, we're going to be paying attention to his active place in our life. There are two words in the Bible, one Hebrew and one Greek that roughly mean pay attention. In our, and in our Bible, those words are both translated behold. Behold is a word that I'm guessing we only encounter in our Bible these days. I'm guessing your colleague when making a presentation at work doesn't say behold. You know, it's really only encountered in God's word. And what it means is, it means pay attention. It means look. It means listen. One person on the ESV translation committee uh, defines these two words 
the one in Hebrew and the one in Greek, as pay attention. What you are about to hear or what you are about to see is particularly surprising and particularly important. And it strikes me in in preparing for this Advent season that the word behold comes out in Scripture, especially in reference to Jesus. God is grabbing our attention in His Word because if we're not careful, we will miss Him. Behold is an Advent Word. And so for the next four weeks leading into Christmas, we're going to look at four passages of Scripture where we encounter this Word, Behold. This morning it comes from Mark chapter 1. We're told to behold something in the passage we're about to read. It must be surprising. It must be important. And it must be easy but devastating to miss. Let's take a look. I'll read. You can follow along. Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 8. This is the word of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John, the baptizer, appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Come, Holy Spirit, we need your empowerment. We need your presence at this very moment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a kid, my family had an Advent wreath that we bought from church. And I remember on Sunday evening, sitting by the fireplace, lighting each candle. But here's the thing. As much as I enjoy doing that, as much as I enjoy traditions like that, I didn't really know why we were doing it. And it wasn't anybody's fault. I'm sure my church explained Advent perfectly well. I'm sure my parents explained Advent perfectly well. I just wasn't listening. And I don't think I'm alone. Most of us have heard of, heard of Advent, but we're not really listening what Advent is really about. We've even participated in Adventy things. But if pressed, I don't know if many of us are quite sure what Advent is and what it is about. Over the years, I've noticed, even in my own life, two different approaches to Advent. The first is what I'll call the Adventless approach. Some of us just don't recognize Advent at all. Not on purpose. It's like um, we treat Thanksgiving like a light switch. We clear the dishes of Thanksgiving and then click. It's Christmas time. Without Advent, 
Christmas morning becomes a finish line instead of the starting line. Without Advent, songs like the 12 days of Christmas don't make sense. It's the Adventless approach. But the second approach is what I will call the Christmas light Advent. We tend to approach Advent like our favorite Starbucks approaches Advent. It's not Christmas. It's more like Christmas light. Uh, it's when we recognize that, yes, there is an Advent season leading up to Christmas, uh, but we treat Advent, like I've said before, almost like a tailgate party for the Christmas celebration. We do Christmassy things without calling it Christmas. We just call it by another name. That's the Christmas light approach. But, but friends, Advent is something entirely different. And I wonder if we, if we know and appreciate how it is different. I mean, I struggle with Advent, and I'm your pastor. And this is why we need the passage that we just read. Because we need John the Baptizer to help us practice Advent this year. After all, John the Baptizer, he helped the ancient people celebrate the very first Advent in history. He was, in the words of verse 2, if you look down at your text, a messenger of what? Of preparation. See, we're not just following and doing Advent because it's some something that someone told us to do. We see in the scriptures um, a precedent for preparation. And John the baptizer was a messenger of preparation. He was like, he had one message and it was an Advent message. It was basically, I'm helping you prepare for the coming of Jesus. And so let's learn from John. Isn't that a good idea? Let's just learn from John who, who, who ushered in the first Advent. Let's learn from him about how to approach Advent this year. And from this short text that we heard aloud, I see three things. First of all, we learn that Advent is a pilgrimage. Not a literal pilgrimage where we pack up and, and sort of walk for four weeks. Just walk into the wilderness. No, but a pilgrimage nonetheless. It's a pilgrimage nonetheless where we purposefully walk away from the normal often busy and thoughtless rhythms of life. And we strip things down to the basics, and for four weeks, we just live differently. We are on a pilgrimage of sorts. Just take a look again at our text. According to verse 3, John is a voice crying out in the wilderness. And then in verse 4, we see that his ministry was in the Judean wilderness or desert. I've been in the Judean wilderness personally. It is dry bone and it is barren, especially in comparison to Jerusalem. And it's just endless white sand. That's all it is. It's endless white sand. If you think sort of a verdant forest, uh, when you hear the word wilderness, you got to get that out of your mind. And you got to think instead just bone white desert. And John purposefully places himself into this kind of environment. Why? Because he wants us to know that he is just like the desert prophets of old, especially Elijah. John even dresses like Elijah, wearing the clothes of a desert prophet. And Mark points out 
that this fulfills Old Testament expectations in verses 2 and 3. That's why in your text, the, the, the print is in indented. The reason it's indented is because it's cueing us into the fact that Mark is quoting Old Testament scripture. And what he's doing is he's pointing out that this fulfilled Old Testament expectation. But I want us to know that there's more to it. There's more to it than just checking Old Testament boxes. John is inviting people out. John the baptizer is inviting people away from the normal rhythms of their life into a pilgrimage of sorts, away from business as usual. Just look at verse 5. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going where? Going out to him. All had to go out and change their environment into the wilderness to see and to notice and to prepare for God to move. Um, often I need a change in my environment in order to see things clearly. Um, I can get stuck in a rut and in a routine, and that can blind me to the obvious. I don't know if you can relate. Um, I, I see things, even if I go on a walk and change my environment, I see things and, and understand things completely differently, things that I would have missed otherwise just by changing my environment. This happens all the time when I'm preparing sermons. I I can struggle for hours in front of my desk, and then I can just take a walk or play with my kids, and it just snaps together. This is why John is in the wilderness. Ever since the Exodus, the wilderness has been a place of repentance, of grace, of renewal, It's been a place of clarity. In the Bible, if you go on a pilgrimage to the wilderness, in the Bible, there's a pretty good chance you're going to encounter God. He's going to show up. I mean, there's a reason Jesus opted to pray in the desert before returning back to the city. That's what Advent is for. It's a pilgrimage of sorts. We interrupt our normal schedules in order to see Jesus more clearly. So just let me ask you, what patterns of business as usual are you planning on breaking this season? I know that the pandemic has broken much of our business as usual, but frankly, because the pandemic has persisted so long, we have, we have created new rhythms. And maybe some of those new rhythms need broken, need interrupted, so that you can pay attention to Jesus, so that you can spend more time crying out, how long, O Lord? And then what will your pilgrimage look like this year? How can you heed the baptizer's call? Usually Advent is a sparse season uh, because travelers and hikers like to keep things light. So is there a way for you to reduce the clutter this year in order to focus on King Jesus? Advent is a pilgrimage. We travel light. But John also shows us that Advent is a preparation, not just a pilgrimage, but a preparation. In other words, it's not just some aimless journey into the wilderness, like some uh, kind of Matthew McConaughey style uh, vision retreat in the desert. It's not that. No, it's definitely not that. It's a pilgrimage into barrenness for a reason, for a reason, namely preparing our hearts for Jesus. Look at verse 2 again. Behold, there's that word, behold. Behold, 
Behold, pay attention, look. Wake up. Look at what? A messenger who will help us prepare for the coming of the Lord. That's what we're supposed to wake up to. So John invites us into the desert. Why? So that we can prepare our hearts for Jesus. And if we look at verses 4 and 5, we see what that preparation looked like. Verse 4. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That phrase, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, is what that preparation looked like. John is also uh, clear in verse 8 that his baptism, though it symbolized this this, uh, repentance, it was inferior to the baptism that Jesus would bring. It was a preparation for the baptism that Jesus would bring. But his baptism in the River Jordan powerfully symbolized what John was about and what this pilgrimage was about. It was about preparing through repentance, repentance of sin. So let's just talk about that word repentance because it's an important theme for Advent and for all of us. The word here is metanoia, which means change, meta, and noia, mind, change of mind. And so repentance, you've probably heard that word used a lot. Maybe you're confused, like I often am, about what it means. It means when we make a decision to turn from sin to Jesus. It's not really fundamentally a feeling, but a decision to turn from and then put Jesus first. Uh, Josie and I and our family, we cut down a Christmas tree every year. And later today, we will be finding the perfect place in our living room uh, for this tree. But it will be hard to do so this year because we have uh, some new furniture and we love all the things that are in our small living room. We love all of them. They're all great. I just put my turntable up. I love everything that is in my living room. I love how it looks. I love how it feels. It's the perfect living room. But here's the thing. We need to move something in order to make room for this tree. And more than just make room, we actually need to give this tree prime location. Prime location. That's Advent. Do you see? Advent is more than making room. It's giving prime spot in our lives to Jesus. So how are you preparing for Jesus during this Advent? Is there a good thing in your life? that's sitting in your living room, that you are giving prime spot? Do you need to move it to give Jesus prime spot? See, often idols, idols of the heart I'm talking about, are good things like family life or provision or health that becomes ultimate in our life and takes the prime spot in our life. Repentance here, the change of mind here, would not look like burning that good thing down to the ground so much as moving it to another place underneath the Lordship of Jesus. Rearranging and giving Jesus prime location. Let me ask you this, is there, is there a habit or is there an unhealthy rhythm in your life that you need to press pause on during Advent? When I went to the backcountry two summers ago, um, I was without so many normal things, normal things that I thought I needed on a daily basis. 
Advent can be a time, like we said, where we're on a pilgrimage, where we travel light. And then when we come back after Christmas, we might discover that we don't need all those things anymore. Is there a sinful attitude or a sinful action that needs to be rejected in Jesus' name this Advent? I mean, that's honestly how we best prepare during Advent. Repentance, John the Baptizer teaches us, is the heartbeat of Advent. We make room and we give place, prime place, to Jesus through repentance. There is no other way. And so Advent is a pilgrimage. Advent is a preparation. And last, John shows us that Advent is a prostration. That's a, that's a fancy word to be face down. To be prostrate is to be face down in humble admiration. In the Bible, it happens whenever anyone is given a glimpse of, of the holiness of God. What happens? They, they end up face down, inevitably. And even today, it happens when people encounter anything great. It's a natural response to greatness. It communicates with our body that we are in the presence of something mightier, something grander, something holier, something more awesome. And that's what John does with Jesus in this passage. Look again at verse 7. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So in those days, to untie sandals was the lowest thing you could do in that cultural moment. And John lowers himself below that. And this, to me, is surprising as much as it is refreshing because John was clearly popular. He was clearly popular. Verse 5 says, all came to him. It's a lot of people. He had a successful ministry. He had numbers. He would be today on Time Magazine's most influential people uh, of his day. We know from the book of Acts that 30 years after this, um, there were still John disciples. There were John the Baptizer's disciples that Paul encounters. And so we knew that he was popular. But John knew that that he had a place. And it was under King Jesus. He was, according to verse 2, a messenger. That's what he saw himself as, a messenger. And his message was about one thing, he who was mightier. He who is mightier. I want you to say that with me, mightier. Jesus is mightier. Jesus is mightier. I, I know it's weird and awkward. Just say it. Jesus is mightier. John knew it, and he wants you to know it too. How is Jesus mightier? Let's just count the ways. And we just see in this passage alone all kinds of ways that Jesus is mightier. First of all, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. It says in verse 1 that he's the son of God. He's not, no, in other words, he's no mere human Messiah. He is fully human, but he's not merely fully human. He is also fully God. Jesus is God Almighty. And in verse 8, only God sends his spirit. And so, when John the Baptist says that Jesus, that Jesus is going to baptize you and pour out his Holy Spirit, that is saying something. He is mightier. He is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the gospel. Verse 1 says that Jesus is the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is here the gospel or good news. This phrase, good news or euangelion, this, this phrase, 
gospel was used in Mark's time to describe the outcome of a battle. If, a, if an army won a decisive battle far away, a messenger would come and share the news. And they would basically say, something happened that will change your life forever. That's what a messenger would say. They would say, something happened that will change your life forever. And in this case, the messenger is John and the message is Jesus. Remember, we like to say it often, the gospel, the good news is news. It's not advice. It's not a self-help regime. The gospel is a person, Jesus, not a philosophy of living. Jesus is mightier. Jesus brings new creation. The very first word in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, is beginning. Beginning. And this should, make, this should make all of us think of the very first word in the Bible, which is beginning. Mark is telling us something. Jesus brings new creation. All that has been broken by sin in creation will be renewed and restored in new creation. Jesus is mightier. And then Jesus is our victory later on in the gospel. In Mark chapter 3, verse 27, you can take a look. Jesus says that he alone is strong enough to bind up Satan. Chapter 3, verse 27 says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Talking about Satan. And here it is, Jesus himself saying, I am mightier. I alone can bind up Satan. This speaks of the victory of Jesus. John knows he can't bind up Satan. Only Jesus can. Jesus is mightier. John the Baptist shows us that Jesus is our forgiveness. Only God can forgive sins. And so uh, this preparation of repentance for the forgiveness of sins points to Jesus. All throughout the Gospels, it's Jesus who's forgiving sins. He's not speaking uh, sort of on behalf of God. He is speaking as God. Do you see? He himself is forgiving. And how does he do that? Well, it is certified and demonstrated most profoundly and finally on his cross where he absorbs our debt so that we could be forgiven forever. He is mightier. He alone can forgive your sins. There's a serious job hazard in my profession. Um, It's called baptized narcissism. Uh, One counselor in a book says, the pastoral ministry can attract narcissism because it's the one job that speaks for God. (laughs) And I have to remind myself of that often. Unless you are called to ministry, unless you are like John the Baptist here, understanding himself to be a messenger of the gospel, you are in danger. In fact, I had a professor in seminary who had the entire classroom go around and quote John the Baptist out loud and say, I am not the Christ. Each person had to say individually before every single class we had with this professor, I am not the Christ. It was like a a support group, frankly. And to this day, whenever I say that, whenever I say that, my blood pressure goes down 
and my faith goes up. I am not the Christ. So I want you to say that right now. Just say it out loud. I am not the Christ. And I want you to get in the habit of saying that this Advent season so that you carry it with you the rest of your life. What if that is our phrase, actually, this whole Advent? I am not the Christ. You think about um, the challenges you have at work. I am not the Christ. You think about your challenges you have with parenting. I am not the Christ. You think about your challenges in your marriage. I am not the Christ. You think about the challenges that our world is facing right now. I am not the Christ. John is, is, is telling us that Advent is the season where we point to Jesus and away from ourselves. Let Advent train our hearts to point to Jesus more and more. He is mightier than anything or anyone in your life. So this season, behold, behold, pay attention. God is doing a new thing in Jesus. Uh, He's leading us in a new exodus. Uh, He's leading us into the wilderness on a pilgrimage for a season, yes. He's passing us through the waters of Jordan for a season, yes. But he is taking us into the new creation. Jesus is leading the way. May we see it. May we not miss it. May we behold it. And so, Jesus, we do behold you now. And we ask, Lord, that you would give to us eyes that see afresh who you are. You who is mightier than everything and everyone, every circumstance, every fear, in our life. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.